Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice. This is Kat Moon, your host for this episode. I'm a lawyer and legal educator, and it's part of my mission as a co-host of this podcast to engage in conversations with people who are thinking in new and different ways about how we can close the enormous civil justice gap we currently face in the U.S., We know from Legal Services Corporation's 2022 Justice Gap study that low-income Americans do not get any or enough legal help for 92% of their substantial civil legal problems. The topic of today's conversation goes directly to how we can close this gap by increasing the number of people in the U.S. who are providing civil legal help to people in need by expanding who can provide help beyond lawyers. In late 2022, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, or IELTS for short, issued its initial report on the state of allied legal professional programs in the U.S. The report is part of the larger allied legal professional project IELTS has launched. The project aims to study these programs closely and enable their growth nationwide. Just as medical professionals like nurse practitioners expand access to healthcare, Allied legal professionals can expand access to legal help. Here to tell us more about the project are Michael Holberg, Director of Special Projects at IELTS and lead on the OUT project, along with Jim Sandman, President Emeritus of Legal Services Corporation, an IELTS board member, and an expert on the civil justice gap in the U.S. Hello, welcome, Jim and Michael, to Talk Justice. I am so excited to have you here today to talk with us and all our listeners. And I'm so interested in learning more about the project that is the topic of our conversation today. And I will admit I dug into the report when Isles released it. And I really appreciated this opportunity in preparation for our conversation to dig back into it. And I think it reignited some excitement for me. So I'm really, really happy we can share this on Talk Justice. So welcome to you both. I would love just to jump in because there's so much ground to cover, so let's just get to it. Michael, I want to invite you first to share with us what the project is and give us a little bit of insight into how IELTS really took the lead and is running with this. Sure, happy to. Thank you. So what this project is It's looking at the allied legal professional programs across the United States right now. And when I say allied legal professionals in Washington, that would be the triple LT, the limited licensed legal technicians in Arizona. It's the legal paraprofessionals in every state. It's a different name, but that's what we're talking about with the allied legal professionals. And that's part of what brought Isles to create this project that we have which I'll, I'll, I'll jump into, but we saw that all these different states were very interested in these types of programs, wanting to create them, wanting to even just understand them better. So what IELTS did, and it was around the beginning of 2022, we started compiling what existing high-level details of the programs that currently exist, the programs that 
did not yet exist, but states that had proposals out there and then states that were just talking about this. And so we looked at what do these programs look like? What are the practice areas that they're um, including? What are the roles and responsibilities? Can they represent in court? Do they need attorney supervision? Just looking at all these different pieces of the framework. And so we dove into those details within each state. And then we started reaching out and talking to the leaders of the states that created these programs to find out even more deeper details of why did you decide this? Why did you choose family law over all of these different areas? Then from there, we created the landscape report that you just mentioned, which we released in November 2022. The purpose of that goes back to what I was saying in the beginning of when states were interested in this, they start creating committees and then, you know, start looking into what's going on. And it just it takes significant amount of resources, both time and money for these states. And we really wanted to speed that process up and help states with that. So that was kind of the third phase of creating that landscape report after doing all of this research. And then what we've done most recently is we brought together a group of experts and leaders in this area to convene together, to go over the landscape report and to talk about, okay, now that we have all of this data, what what have we seen is working? What can be improved upon? What should states really know when they're developing their program? And so now we're working on a report that we're planning on releasing next month in April um, of recommendations on how exactly to develop one of these programs. And that's kind of where we're at right now. So you mentioned the landscape report, which is the resource that I initially read and learned about all the work that IELTS is doing in this area. And so I want to kind of back up to the report a little bit and maybe highlight some of the aspects of the report that are really most interesting and salient for folks to know about in the event they have yet to read it. I highly recommend. As the report breaks down, there are 16 states, if I recall correctly, identified in the report. And the report breaks down, as you were saying, in all these aspects of a framework that you all have set out and identifies the differences and similarities between the states. Could you provide an overview of what those categories, kind of where the different states are, and maybe highlight a couple of those specific aspects of the framework that you think are most interesting with regard to the data that you all have collected. Sure, yeah. So the landscape report really dives into, I can't think of the exact number of framework pieces, but what we looked at was the practice areas that they were including and and what we found, the three most common that states are looking at are implementing are family law, landlord, tenant, and debt collection. The reason being is those are the three areas that we have data on showing that they have some of the highest levels of self-representation. And so the thought with um, these states are, let's really tackle that. In addition, we have roles and responsibilities just talking about things like, can they provide legal advice? How much can they help with forms, whether it's filling it out, signing them, filing them, looking at how much they can communicate with the opposing opposing party or the other the other side, things like that. And then we looked into title, which was very interesting uh, because every state, as I mentioned in the beginning, just it's 
so different. I think that is the biggest difference and the hardest thing for states to agree on is what do we call them? And then we looked at attorney supervision, which most states, especially the ones that are actually active in creating programs, they're not, they're saying that attorney supervision is not necessary. The couple states that have either implemented it or about to implement it with attorney supervision, they're pilot programs, uh, which makes it easier to get the program off quicker. And that's one of the main reasons they've done that. Just one other I'll mention that we've found to be really interesting is looking at in-court representation because states are really across the board on this as well in terms of whether they allow full representation, which is just kind of like attorneys, which is something that Arizona allows, and Minnesota as well. Although they're a pilot project and they require attorney supervision, but when the legal paraprofessionals in Minnesota when they're in court, they actually don't need the attorney there with them. So they're not necessarily being supervised at the time in court, which, which I find to be interesting. But those are the only states that allow full representation. There's also limited representation or just saying can't be in court at all. But with limited, it's really it's sitting, being able to be in court at the table next to your client, talk with them about what's going on, explaining the procedure and you're not able to examine or cross-examine witnesses, but it's mainly when the judge is asking the allied legal professional themselves specific factual questions about the case, they're able to respond. But it's very limited in that way, and each state kind of differs on how much of that limitation they allow. So I think you hit on the points that I found most interesting as well, and I really want to recommend people read the report because I so appreciate how not only do you get into the differences in these different aspects of the framework, but the report also offers reasons why states might go in one direction versus the other, which I think is really helpful background information for other states who are thinking about instituting these kinds of programs, thus making the resource really valuable. And I, I think the basis for states choosing, for instance, to allow in-court representation or not, or require attorney supervision or not, speaks a lot to the context in which this is all operating. So these programs are ways for people who are not lawyers, not licensed JDs, to deliver legal services, right? And so this leads to a question, a big question in my mind, and I would love to invite Jim into the conversation to talk about why we need these programs. Why is this first very important that these things are happening? And two, what is the larger context that these programs are a part of? Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Kat. Restrictions on the unauthorized practice of law have left us with a market for legal services that year after year after year is completely incapable of providing anywhere near the level of legal assistance we, we need to meet demand. There are many indications that the market for legal services is catastrophically dysfunctional. Let me give you a few. The National Center for State Courts estimates that in only 24% of civil cases in state courts today are both parties represented by lawyers. What we're teaching our law students, this model where both parties have lawyers and present evidence and argue the law is a fiction. 
in more than three quarters of cases in the United States today. And I'm not talking about traffic ticket cases. I'm talking about evictions. I'm talking about foreclosures, all kinds of family law cases, including petitions for protective orders for victims of domestic violence. In our insistence that people have a lawyer to protect them, ostensibly, against unscrupulous actors or incompetence, we've left those who can't afford a lawyer with no help from anyone else. A second indicator. Last year, the Legal Services Corporation released a justice gap study uh, measuring the difference between the resources available to meet the legal needs of low-income people and what those needs are. And what it found was that 92% of the civil legal needs of low-income people either get no help or inadequate help. A final indicator. There's an organization called the World Justice Project that every year ranks the countries of the world on their compliance with various indicators of the rule of law. One of the indicators is the affordability and accessibility of civil justice. In the most recent rule of law index issued in October of 2022, the United States ranks 115th out of 140 countries on the affordability and accessibility of civil justice. And among the 43 wealthiest countries in the world, the United States ranks 43rd. I think this is a national and international embarrassment. We need to be able to get assistance to people who need help with their civil legal needs. And the current system that says only lawyers can do that is a failure. Can we get an amen? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Jim, you always have such a to the point, but yet incredibly compelling way of sharing this data that I agree with you is incontrovertible. And it is a great embarrassment. So we have programs like this, um, like these, that are popping up across states. Can you share your insight into how you think these programs really can help us solve this problem? I think problem's too small a word. I think these programs have the potential to make a huge difference. They're very thoughtful programs. The the programs that have been set up uh, so far tend to have uh, two focuses. One is uh, they're, they're typically limited to particular subject matter areas, such as family law and housing, which makes sense because family law cases and housing cases are among those where there are the largest percentages of self-represented litigants. And the consequences are very big in those cases. So you have high volume, high stakes cases with large numbers of self-represented litigants. And second, They're very thoughtful in prescribing the precise tasks that the allied legal professionals can perform. People have thought about what you might really need only a lawyer to do and what other competent, trained, licensed, regulated professionals who don't have a JD might be able to do and provide meaningful help to people. So I think there are templates out there now that make a lot of sense. They're connected to the areas of largest unmet need, and they've reduced uh, the, the need for states that are considering programs like this to reinvent the wheel. There's some wonderfully thoughtful models out there. And what it does is it expands the supply of helpers. That, that's what we need overwhelmingly. 
Yes, because we have approximately 1.35 to 1.4 million licensed lawyers at any given time. And there's a lot of data to establish that we fundamentally are incapable of meeting the need, taking even the, the pricing aspect out of it. We just, there aren't enough of us. Can I mention two other points that are not widely please, known? Please, please, yes. One is uh, that over the course of the last 50 years, lawyers have migrated their practices away from serving individuals and towards serving businesses. In 1973, 54.2% of law firm revenue was coming from individuals. In 2017, the last year for which I've seen data, only 25.4% of law firm revenue was coming from individuals. Lawyers have migrated their practices toward the clients who can afford to pay their rates, and those tend to be businesses. So although there are many more lawyers in the United States today than there were 50 years ago, they're serving a different client population. The second point I want to make is that this problem affects not just low-income people, not just people who are eligible for legal aid but can't get it because legal aid is so terribly under-resourced. People don't understand how low the income eligibility cutoffs are for legal aid. In 2023, typically most generous legal aid uh, cutoff uh, for income eligibility is an income for an individual of $29,160. I've got news. People who make $30,000 and aren't eligible for legal aid can't afford a lawyer. This is a problem that affects the middle class and not just low-income people. Uh, IELTS research shows that the problem goes well up the income scale, far above the income eligibility cutoffs for, for legal aid. Two other points to underscore the magnitude of the problem. I think there's overwhelming data. And those are excellent points. So we have all this data. We have these programs that are popping up. Now, 16 states are in some stage. I want to shift a little bit um, because this the challenges you described, Jim, exist across the United States, across jurisdictions. Some states are obviously being much more proactive to address this incredible challenge than others. So a handful of states have actually implemented. And I would like, Michael, would you highlight those states that are actually doing something with allied legal professional programs now currently, like on the ground? Sure. So the states that actually have a program that is implemented up and running are Washington, which there is a caveat because their program has been sunset by the Washington State Supreme Court, but that does that just means that there cannot be new allied legal professionals in that state. All those that have already been licensed can, 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 can continue to be licensed, can continue to serve people. And so I still include their program as an existing active program for that reason. In addition to them, we have Utah that came second in 2018, and then we have Arizona, Um, that started in 2021, along with Minnesota. Um, I mentioned Minnesota. It is just a pilot program right now that goes to 2024, I believe. And then they will look at or decide at that point whether they create a full-time program. And then two other states that have said that they're going to move forward with implementation are Oregon, which their plans right now are to have a program starting later this year. 
and then um, New Hampshire as well, which actually went through the legislature, which is kind of a different way than most other states have, but them as well. And then there's a many other states that are considering this very seriously, Colorado being one of them. And their state Supreme Court, I believe, is looking at making a determination um, any month or day now. Well, that's exciting for you in Colorado, um, which is where Isles is based, by the way. So yes. we have four states now who are actively engaging in these programs. And so producing data that other states can refer to when they are trying to decide if, how, when. Um, so I think that's incredibly valuable. I do want to point out uh, one of those bits of detail that you all provide in the report talks about uh, a basis for Washington sunsetting the triple LT program, as it's called there, was the cost of administering it and how actually minuscule the cost um, <laughs> when compared to the overall budget of the state bar actually is. So, and, and cost of such programs is, again, one of those details that you all dive into into the report. So, I, I again, want to commend folks who are really interested in understanding um, how this framework that you all have identified and all the data that you provided from existing programs and programs under consideration um, can really help inform folks who are interested in doing this in their own jurisdiction. It's an incredible resource. And that leads me to another area that I would I would love to share with listeners. And um, Michael, Jim, either one of you, both of you, jump in on this one. What is the future? Like, where is Isles going with this particular project? And um, how do you see this playing out in the existing jurisdictions where it's under consideration? There are a handful that decided not to move forward. Um, I will point that out, California and Florida being two of them identified in the report. And maybe other jurisdictions taking up these kinds of programs to actively meet and serve and close the justice gap. Where are we going? (laughs) I'm happy to go first and let, let... Jim, take us off into the, into the sunset. Um, so in terms, I see this two ways. I see this short-term and long-term where we're going. Short-term for Isles, our goal, I mentioned the report that we have that we're going to be publishing in April. That's you know very short-term, what we're looking at. And that's going to have recommendations on, on, on developing these programs. And our goal is then, once that's published, is working with states that are interested in this to help develop it. And and I, to answer your question of where I see, you know, the, the current states and developing states, I don't see them going away. I don't see this being a case of Washington state. There was a lot going on in that state at that time that I don't think we need to get into, but I think differentiates it from other states that have active programs like Utah and Arizona. And so I see those as being very successful. We're already seeing with these states, the amount of licensees are increasing far beyond how Washington started. Washington still has the most with 91 licensees. Doesn't mean all of them are active, but 91 people ultimately became licensed. But Arizona started in just 2021, they have over 30. And with just the University of Arizona alone that has 
three to four different programs or tracks to become a legal paraprofessional in that state. I believe they have around 70 um, students that are just at those programs alone. And that's just one university in that state. And so it shows that there's there's definitely a desire from people to to join and become this new class of, of legal professional. And then to go a step further, every time I talk about this, whether it's, you know, in, in a meeting with one state or in just a broader meeting, I'm constantly learning about new states that are starting to consider this and starting to develop a committee that it's, it, it, it really is just catching like wildfire. And so I see this only growing and growing in terms of aisles. What another thing I think that short term goal that we have is as this becomes more national, we want to work with states and not just developing, but creating more uniformity. I mentioned all the differences that states have. I think one thing that's really going to benefit these professionals and just benefit the success of the programs in general is having that uniformity, starting with a title. I think if, you know, states could agree on that, that would be wonderful. In the convening that I mentioned that we did, that we had in November, we looked at all of the different factors within a title of what should be considered that it should, you know, convey professionalism, not really showcase their limitations and, and that it needs to be clear and be, you know, translatable with other countries or other languages. And we ended up on legal practitioner. Doesn't mean that that's ultimately what's going to, you know, be the name that sticks. But I, I personally think that's, I, I like that name and I think it's clear and, and works well and, and, other people can see it sort of like the nurse practitioner in a way is one of the identifiables with that. But in addition to that education requirements, having more of a national exam, it doesn't have to replicate the uniform bar exam in any way, because I think there's plenty of problems with that test alone, but just repli- um, you know, having a uniformity so that states can say, okay, you've passed this exam over in this state. So we know that you know, you're competent to practice in our state. Um, and then that brings up reciprocity. Having that people be able to work in different states, I think, again, will just really bolster these programs. And all of that, all of that short term, um, <laughs> in, in terms of long term, and I'll take this like 30 seconds with this is it's really creating an ecosystem of legal service providers. And we're seeing, you know, different states really thrive in different ways with this. But the allied legal professionals, they've really hit the middle income population that Jim talked about, who they can't afford legal aid. Um, they can't afford an attorney, but they do have money. They, they are able to afford some services, just not, you know, the $5,000 retainer or the 500, $300 to $500 an hour. They can't afford that, but they can't afford about half of that, which is what we're seeing allied legal professionals charging. But there's a whole, a whole ecosystem of community advocates that innovation for justice in Arizona that's connected with the University of Arizona. They've created some amazing community advocate programs out there that really help with um, domestic violence survivors, housing stability and medical debt issues. We're seeing legal aid being expanded to, and, and these are volunteers, but they're volunteers that are not attorneys, 
but are being trained and work under legal aid and they're able to provide services. So Alaska is doing this right now and they're able to be out in the community much more than normal legal aid that's in the larger cities. And they're able to represent and help people who maybe can't, you know, go out to the bigger cities or things like that. And then just court navigators. And so there's there's a whole, you know, there's so many different levels of providers out there that can help in different areas. And I think as states use each one of these, we'll see this access to justice gap start to go down. I agree with everything Michael said. I think that I'm optimistic that the momentum is going to build for the expansion of these programs across the country. I say that for three reasons. One, we now have models, templates, because of the groundwork that the four states, soon to be six, that Michael mentioned have already done. Other states don't need to start over again. They, 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 can, they can start well down the road. And the availability of what they've done through the great resources that IELTS has. IELTS has made their experiences accessible across the country. People don't um, have to struggle to find out what other states have done. They just go to the IELTS website. They can talk to uh, Michael and they're off and running. So we're in a different place. Uh, second, the existence of these programs is generating evidence that responds to the concerns that opponents of these programs express about incompetence and unethical behavior, harm to the public. The current regulatory system with its blanket ban on the unauthorized practice of law presumes harm based on no evidence at all that someone who's not a lawyer is going to be harmful to the public. Well, we're now developing data to counter that, to say what's happening in Arizona and Utah and what ha what's happened in Washington. So that'll be helpful. And third, the process by which these programs are being adopted in some states is now including much more opportunity for public input into the decision about whether there should be such programs or not. The gold standard to, for me in getting public input was Arizona, where they did a survey of the public, they did town hall meetings, they did focus groups, they had all kinds of ways to get meaningful input from the public on what they thought about an allied professional program. Contrast that with the way traditional changes in the lawyer regulatory system are made, where uh, proposed changes are posted on a court website or a bar website and uh, comments are solicited. Real people with real lives aren't lurking around court and bar websites looking for people to comment on. If you're looking for a way not to get public input, that's a good way to do it. IELTS has worked with Michigan on developing a protocol to get meaningful public input. And where you do get meaningful public input, what it shows is that the public favors programs like this by about the same supermajorities that lawyers on the basis of no evidence oppose them. All of those reasons make me optimistic we're off and running. And I think we will end on that note. I am incredibly optimistic as well. And Jim, your optimism is inspiring. And Michael, yours as well. Thank you both for joining us today to talk about this important work. And thank you both for dedicating your time, energy, and resources to really elevating these programs and, I don't know, inspiring us all to learn more and 
participate. I hope that folks who are listening to this, um, because I think the participation point is really important, folks who are listening to this are inspired and motivated to go learn more about the work on allied legal professionals that IELTS is doing and to think about how they can work to bring programs like this to their communities and their jurisdictions because um, that's where the difference is going to be made. That's where the rubber is going to hit the road. So thank you both so much for your time. I'm grateful. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I am grateful to Jim Sandman and Michael Holberg for joining me to spread the word about IELTS Allied Legal Professionals Project. As Jim so eloquently shared, the need for expanded civil legal help is enormous. In Jim's words, the market for legal services is catastrophically dysfunctional. Our failure to help people with their civil legal needs is a national and international embarrassment. And the work IELTS is doing to gather data about allied legal professional programs and share the outcomes of these programs is a tremendous resource for any state that would like to build this kind of program and, to quote Jim again, expand the supply of legal helpers. The full Allied Legal Professionals Landscape Report produced by IELTS, along with ongoing research, can be found on the IELTS website at iaals.du.edu. Click on the Projects tab to read more and download the report. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Talk Justice is brought to you by Legal Services Corporation and Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to rate and review the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.